Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 338 and part one of my conversation with orchestral percussionist, composer, performer, publisher, mentor, and entrepreneur, Rainer Carroll. We'll check back with him very shortly. Here at Mizzou, we are finally in our spring break. The weather has been pleasant, and we hope it continues that way. We had a chance to leave town for a couple days and enjoy some time away and appreciate a more relaxed schedule before jumping right back into the fray next week and finishing out the semester. But right now, let's get to our conversation with Rainer Carroll. Most folks who listen to this show will know the name Rainer Carroll from his very influential timpani method book, Exercises, Etudes, and Solos for the Timpani. If you kept up with Rainer, you also likely knew that he performed with the Los Angeles Philharmonic for 33 years and has more or less seen it all. These days, after retiring from the Los Angeles Philharmonic in 2016, Rainer has been devoting his time to not only continuing to perform and teach, but to lead the Alliance of Black Orchestral Percussionists, or ABOP. ABOP is an organization that allows him to work with many other great orchestral percussionists across the United States who are black and is mentoring the next generation of great players. We went long on this conversation, so it's broken up into two parts. Today, on part one, you'll hear mostly about Rainer's professional work and background, including more about ABOP, writing his book and teaching Tiffany, and the orchestral percussion audition process. Next week on part two, you'll hear the rest. One last note, there is a work that is referenced in this portion of the interview that both he and I were unsure of the name of while discussing it. When the work comes up, be aware that we are talking about Michael Tippett's The Rose Lake. Rototoms! All right, let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on March 9th, 2023, and it begins right now. All right, well, Rainer, please uh, let me know and tell me what you are your percussion activities as they are at this point. Currently, uh, percussion activities do not involve a lot of playing. Uh, it's mostly my nonprofit, ABOP, Alliance of Black Orchestra Percussionists. And that is basically a couple of years ago, uh, I got together with my fellow colleagues across the country, Johnny Lee Lane, who's you know one of the leading educators that we have, very proud. <laughs> uh, Tim Adams, who's the former princi uh, principal timpanist of the Pittsburgh Symphony, uh, Mike Rousseau, former principal with the Seattle Symphony, Douglas Cardwell, who's former principal, a lot of timpanists on this list, yeah. <laughs> uh, former principal timpanist, New Mexico, uh, Javon Gilliam, current principal timpanist of National Symphony, and my fellow percussionist, principal percussionist, Josh, excuse me, Josh Jones, Kansas City. So we all got together, which was really hard to schedule and find a time that, you know, we could all hook up together, but it finally happened and uh, great Zoom sessions. And, you know, I said, guys, you know, we had these fan or have these fantastic careers individually, but collectively, I would love for us to do something 
that would be powerful and meaningful. And that is this mentorship program that we started. And that's what we've been doing. We just got it off the ground. Uh, basically, this past November, we we attended PASIC, got the word out about what we're doing. I met up with a lot of the manufacturers and got great sponsor, sponsorship from the companies. So that's what I spend most of my time doing these days, uh, uh, overseeing, taking phone calls, asking for money, you know, my wife and I writing grants, uh, you know, whatever it takes. And it's it's very rewarding. The little bit of playing I do, I sub for Javon in the National Symphony this summer. And immediately following that, I played for a month with the Sineke Orchestra of Europe, which is Europe's first orchestra made up of predominantly Black and minority musicians. That was a kick. I played with them before. Uh, but we did three weeks touring um, London, if I'm going to remember, everywhere, Switzerland, Germany, uh, Finland also. That was a lot of fun. Every now and then I have a, a movie date coming up. I'm going to be doing, I believe it's a Transformers 7 <laughs> movie. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I like doing the most that I don't do or haven't done since COVID is West African drumming which now that COVID is not as nearly as much of an issue, I want to get that started again. And basically what happens with that is, or what happened with that is when I had a sabbatical from the Philharmonic back in 99, um, I started hanging out in this area in Los Angeles that's known for the cultural uh, richness of the black community at Lamert Park. And, you know, they have drumming there and whatever. And I just started, I bought a djembe and I started hanging out there and playing. I just got stuck. It just, it just felt so natural for me to do it. So I couldn't get enough. So I started having workshops at the house and it's, it's just continued through, like I said, up until COVID. So looking forward to starting that up again. And it's basically friends, some musicians, some non-musicians, percussionists, non-percussionists, and we get together. We don't, jams, so to say. We do specific Malinke, Malinke rhythms, and it, it's just so much fun. And I, I learned this a lot from uh, Mamede Keita, who's, who passed recently, but who's just an amazing player, teacher, person uh, from Guinea, because he, he lived here in Southern California, San Diego, not that long ago. And I would go down and do workshops with him, and he did some in L.A. too. So again, that's one of my passions that I'm hooked on. So that's basically what I'm doing percussion-wise. Well, let's go back to the um, ABOP. How long had that idea been germinating in your mind to do it? You know, you if you think about all the people that you mentioned, a lot of whom have been who have been in the business for a long time. I have to imagine that you you have there's both shared experiences and long periods of isolation. I would imagine that you all have had to experience in these spots. Yeah, absolutely. How long have it's been in my mind? Uh, I want to say almost forever for a long time. Whether it's when I joined the Philharmonic way back in '83 and. You know, whether it's looking in the audience and the audience is is not very diverse and that's that's a separate issue. But, you know, before me, Mike had gotten his position in Seattle. And of course, Elaine Jones 
was uh, timpanist San Francisco Symphony for just a bit, did not get her tenure, but then uh, played for a long time San Francisco Opera. Um, other than that, percussion-wise, I'm not aware <laughs> of anyone. Now, there could be, but I, I, and I'm talking, again, not community orchestra, but, you know, some of our major orchestras in the States. So, you know, I, I come from a different family where we're taught about race, but we don't make it the issue. So as I was growing up, I was aware of situa situations, but, you know, when I joined the field, I was so thrilled, <laughs> you know, to be there. And there, there were actually at the time, there were two other black musicians. And when I joined, a, a black violinist joined with me at the same time. And, you know, I've always said this about the L.A. field. They've always been forward looking and ahead, whether it's in programming or in, you know, the makeup of the orchestra. Um, so it, it I didn't join by myself. I wasn't isolated in that way. And I had my good friend, Bob Watt, who's French horn, who's now retired also that, you know, we, we he kind of took me under his wing and, you know, helped me through some of the early years and some of the things. But, you know, I, I had a good time there. I had a really good time. And I, again, having that support and not being the only like some of my colleagues were, were uh, probably made a big difference for me. I, I had had Doug on a, a while ago and, and that was that came up a number of times for him, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, you know, because it what it what it always sounded like. And I wonder if you had a similar experience was that the organization, whether they knew it or not, would just put expect you to be the diversity right? versus right. someone who might have a diverse idea. I don't know, but it would seem like that level of pressure, I think, can for some folks, I think it would just be it might be too much or just yeah. weighing too much on their mind. Yeah, I, I didn't feel that. I did notice a, a few situations years ago, quite often the L.A. Phil would split the orchestra and play in the community. And, you know, you split the orchestra because you can do two in the same day, two concerts in the same day and, you know, uh, reach out or get to more audience, uh, you know, more quickly that way rather than doing the whole orchestra. And there's a whole budget thing with that, too. But anyway, I, I did notice a few times that they split the orchestra and sent uh, the orchestra I was in to predominantly black neighborhoods, which okay, was it by chance or was it planned or, you know, I, I was fine with it. But, you know, a lot of things come to light when you're removed. And I've been retired now six and a half years. And I'm yeah, again, I didn't have a problem with it, but I'm wondering if that was intentional. I don't know. With the, with ABOP, what are some of the kind of plans in terms of what, what are you what does kind of the, the group want to see happening? Well, what our main objective is, is to support and guide Black percussionists that seek a career in orchestra percussion. And, you know, obviously the, the ultimate goal is to place them in orchestras, to have them prepared, do an audition, and become a member of a major orchestra. Now, there's many, many steps to get there. And it's a long-term thing, and there's a lot of things that have to fall in place for that to happen. But that is the ultimate goal. But, 
In this mentorship program, I should say, and that's why we call it a mentorship and not just a training program, it includes all the obvious musical things, you know, great fundamentals and learn all the instruments and et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, we want them to be responsible adults, too. And that's that's in part through the personal, let's say, one-on-one counseling and advice that we offer to the, we call them protégés. And, you know, to learn uh, the etiquette of life, of being a professional, what's expected of you. And, you know, what I what I find in, if I can generalize, in a lot of students today, the younger generation, communication's not good. And you'll only get but so far if that's an issue for you, as in, you know, simple things like replying to an email. And today, a lot of this is done by email, as in contractors reaching out to players if they don't hear from you soon, whether it's in six hours or 24 hours or whatever, they're going on to the next one in the list, if not even sooner, depends on how soon the call is, you know, and this things like that, they've got to get that down. Uh, you know, whether it's a call, an email, a text or whatever, however you communicate, that's an important part of what we do in our profession, not just music, but in anything you're get, getting hired for. So we want to help them with that and, you know, counsel them in creating a resume, which, I, you know, a lot of schools don't even address or it's or it's optional. I think it should be mandatory. Uh, that's something that, you know, you need you're preparing them for the professional world. So include that, too, as a requirement. You know, we want to help them with school or job applications, scholarship, grant assistance, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not just about the music in ABOP. Yes, that's a big part of it. But like I say, it's this whole holistic being a responsible adult that, you know, music can be a part of it. But, you know, through music, we learn a lot of discipline. And, you know, <laughs> there is the practice regime that you've got to lock yourself into. Uh, you know, if you ask a, a number of so-called successful or musicians that are where they want to be, I, I would say a lot of them would say they learned how to practice and be very efficient at it because that's one of the things that takes you above the others. You don't want to be in the mix of average players. You want to stand out, stand out by your playing and being on time and all that. And it takes some of these small details, you know, learning how to practice the quality of your practice time, not how long you practice, but what you end up doing in that time. And, you know, being responsible, answering your emails and getting to rehearsal as a percussionist, 30, 45 minutes ahead, not 15 minutes, and staying after and helping the others pack up, et cetera, et cetera. To me, it's all a part of being the consummate, complete percussionist musician. And those are some of the things we want to hit on. It's a lot. It's a lot. But you know, we think that's all necessary. It really is. Yeah. Well, and you're also speaking to the fact that there's a, a lot of what you're saying might be assumed and we're, which we're not, do, we're doing a disservice if, if we assume that that's the case. Um, yeah. And additionally, I think when you were mentioning about the playing, I always think of, of how there's uh, a lot of people can play. Like, like, let's, you know, so it's like, I right. like that you you were like, yeah, yeah, we'll, 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 the playing. Yes. Fine. Like we'll get, we'll, we can do that. But, yeah. uh, do you know about like showing up on time and being nice to people? Like right. is that a normal part of your life? Exactly. Yeah. It's important that, you know, 
I, I can't stress it enough. I mean, in the short time we've had our protégés, which basically more or less this program started in November, and we had a student right away, or I had a student here in L.A., but we gained a couple of more uh, first of the year. And it's been so enjoyable for me to see a text, an email. Hey, Rainer, you got a minute or two to talk? I'm like, yes, of course. That's what I'm here for. And, you know, like one of the protégés said, hey, my teacher asked me if I would sit in for him in the orchestra and we're doing Schubert Unfinished and I just want to talk about it. I'm like, that's exactly what I'm here for. That's yeah. great. You know, it's some of the things that I didn't have. Or, or any of the the founders that I mentioned, we didn't necessarily, or we had it through different, you know, different means or whatever. But, you know, it's just the things, the tools they have these days are just amazing. And, you know, I find that some of the students either don't realize or just don't take advantage of it. I mean, one simple thing that I mentioned, and I know I'm kind of going off, Pete, but I hope you don't mind. No, no, please, please do. One thing I mentioned is go to master classes. And I don't mean drum or percussion. Go to piano master class. Go to a viol. Go to it's music. It's all about music. The technique may be different, but we're talking about phrasing. We're talking, I mean, I'll hear them speak about practicing and being efficient. Same thing for percussion. Um, but just to get them, the students to do that is a different thing. But you know, I can only. Uh, what's the saying? You can lead a horse to water. You can't make him drink. But right. those that do stop and do these things, I find that they they rise to the next level. Yeah, no, that's oh, that's amazing advice. I, I can't I can't tell you how much I've learned. Go, n not necessarily master classes, but going to like voice recitals and oh, just yeah. watching how they the ways that they their body moves when they sing. And right. you're just like, that is so much what a percussionist does. It's just not the voice. Right. But stage presence, like they, they have to do that because they're singing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and just those things wrapped completely into. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's wonderful. Like I said, the tools they have with YouTube and watching all the videos, but they need to hear these things live. It sure makes a difference. It helps because that's what I mean. In essence, that's what we're about. I mean, obviously, recording is a part of it, too. But live performance is such a vital thing. And I think that's one of the positives of COVID. We realize how much we missed it so much, you know, whether it was us playing live or the audience listening to us live. So, you know, that's another side thing I would say to, to the younger generations. Get out there and play as much. If you want to be a performer, perform. Because, yeah. you know, if you're excellent in your practice room, that in the practice room, that almost means nothing because it's when you get on stage, you know, where you're at, whether you're in an orchestra or you're in a chamber group or in a rock band, whatever. It's all about what you do in performance time. You know, you know, you can screw up in the practice room as long as you nail it on stage or at the audition, even more important, because that's how you get in the orchestra's. Do, acing that audition that's that's very important absolutely yeah so the your protégés what's the is there a, a timeline or or kind of is there a plan to have like a class per year or what what do you what's kind of the how does how are you seeing that part of it again i'm going to give you maybe a longer answer <laughs> that's fine expected part of my experience through teaching at universities here in LA is that I don't like the structure. 
it, on the whole, I think it doesn't focus on the individual student. So to answer your question, no, it depends on the student, where they are and what they need. This is all with, of course, if we have the proper funding, you know, because if we don't have the industry donating the instruments, which they are, which is amazing, or if we're not getting the funding outside of that to do some of the day-to-day -day operations, it's going to be difficult. But the plan is any of our protégés that are in the program, they stay until they don't need us. Not that we don't need them, but they don't need us or they get into an, whatever, whatever their situation is. So it is not a September to August program, yearly thing. Once they're in, they're in. And of course, they have to meet certain certifications. You know, I'm saying certifications as in, you know, nothing like that. They are reviewed as in they're playing and make, making sure they're making progress and they're doing their part in the community, et cetera. But given that happens, they're with us until they want to be with us and we will support them as far and as long as, as necessary. And also, there is no audition deadline, like I say, because every student is different. Some have time in the summer to do this. Some have time in the fall, et cetera. So whenever they send in an application, we will review it and, you know, admit as 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 being, you know. So it's not a cut deadline. This is the date that you to submit an uh, application. And this program only lasts for you for one year. No, it's indefinite is the expectation that those who are protégés may hopefully be relatively close to the, where uh, the rest of the group is, because uh, you're across the nation in terms of where you're right. placed. So are, is the hope that the protégés are like at least somewhat near somebody physically, or is that, or not, that's not a factor? I Ideally, yes, because okay. we want that one-on-one -on -one interaction, you know, obviously, uh, online, Zoom, whatever, FaceTime has its serious limitations, in particular for percussion, because of the dynamic of our instruments. It's just, it's not, it's not good. So yes, ideally, we want to have a mentor in the area of a protege. And that's, that's one of our challenges, but we're, we're working through that. We do have a, a protege now that we don't have a mentor exactly in the area. But, you know, so far we're doing it online and we're going to do as much one-on-one -on -one as we can. Again, it, it depends on our funding. When we can fly the mentor in to work with the, the protege, that's, that's the ideal thing. I must say also it's a huge learning process for us founders because, you know, we were trained to be musicians, as in percussionists, timpanists, and I think we've all done that very well, but we don't have the training in administration. You know, some of it is fine, we can pick up here and there, but you know, it really takes a lot of expertise in that, and we're learning along the way, and I have to give uh, <laughs> uh, attributes to my wife. She's in the nonprofit world of museums, so she has helped out a lot with that, with the grant writing and looking over papers and almost editing every email I send out. She has to go through it for, no, no, you can't say this. Oh, no, no, you should say it this way. But, you know, again, this is the etiquette that we want to teach to the, the protégés. It's I have to learn the etiquette of talking to donors, you know. I have to know what to say, how to say it, and how to, which and I, I have no training in this. 
But, you know, it it is enjoyable. It just takes a lot of time, which, like I say, like I said from the beginning, for me, this is well worth it. It's a passion. It's something that we didn't have when we were going through necessarily, not this specific program, but it, it's so vital. And now that we have the three protégés, I'm so excited about them and to see where they're going to go, you know, and how we can continually help and lead them. You're very right about the uh, the donor etiquette and the education of the donor. Things that you might see as just being, well, everyone knows this and obviously they don't. But right. Yeah. 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 It's a learning. It's a learning curve. So yeah. in the, you know, the the thing that I think most when if they people see your name there, they attach it to your timpani books. So just I'm starting off with when you wrote that and put that together, what was, what were you seeing as, I, I assume that there might be something, you felt like something was missing from Tiffany performance that your book was addressing. Maybe I'm overstating that a little bit, but I'm. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I definitely wouldn't put it that way. I don't think okay. there was. <laughs> yeah. I, I definitely wouldn't say there's anything missing. It's like when I studied with my teacher, Mitchell Peters, mm-hmm. who was principal timpanist percussionist, LA Phil, um, he taught me that there is no right way to do, there is no one way to do anything. There are many different ways and other ways are not wrong. They're just different. So with this approach on timpani, basically the timpani book came about because I had just been writing material since I started teaching exercises, etudes, whatever. And to a certain point, I thought, well, I should just put it together as a book because I have enough material and or when I started compiling it, I added, obviously I added more material and that's how exercises, etudes and solos for the timpani came about. It was just a compilation of things and the things I would write for students just supplemented, you know, for instance, the Goodman book, which is, you know, considered the Bible and still used to this day. Excellent book. There are just things that I wanted to include that I thought weren't, weren't perhaps there, I wanted to develop more or whatever. So that that's how the that particular book came about. What were some of the things you saw needed supplementing or you want, you were supplementing for your students at least? I guess it was more of a personal approach. Specifically in the first chapter, I, I dealt with, or I deal with intervals um, and giving for me, <laughs> that this was a hard thing, coming up with common songs that people know that would ex- would be an example of learning a whole step, whether it's Happy Birthday, it starts with a whole step, or Mary Had a Little Lamb, or uh, the, the interval of a fifth, uh, Twinkle Twinkle, you know, I, I didn't see that specifically in books, and I thought this would be first to include because... I always say, and my students probably get tired of hearing this, but I don't care how great a pair of hands you have, how smooth your roll, what a beautiful touch you have. But if you don't have the ear, if you don't hear pitch, you you know, you're only going to get but so far, which is probably not very far if you can't tune timpani. So anyway, I thought I'd put that first in the book. So that that's an example of something that I didn't see specifically presented that way. And again, not that other other books or other methods are not not good. They're just a different way. I, I just thought I would emphasize that. 
Well, when you were learning for yourself, was the where was that process of intervals in your own training for Tiffany? Yeah, that's that's the thing. I had a good ear, or I have a good oh, ear. Yeah. So it wasn't an issue. Uh, you know, I can say that. Mitch might say no. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure he would agree with me too. We didn't have to work on that. But you know, and and I say this to my students now. You know, the first chapter is what it is. But everything we do after that, starting with the second chapter, you're going to have to tune. So. You know, you're, I'm going to hear your tuning every lesson you come, whether we're working specifically on intervals. I'm going to leave that to you because we have so much to do. And it's such a basic thing. Yeah, we'll review it every lesson because you're going to have to tune this exercise. You're going to have to tune this excerpt or this etude to play. And I'm going to say no, no, or yes, great. You know, so it that that's my thinking behind that. Relatedly, when you do... Um, when you do work with students and they have they they are struggling with that, and you yes. are not, and that is not something you've struggled with necessarily. Yeah. What what kind of things do you do? You, are are kind of the do you put like milestones in front? How how do you start developing that just in the the lesson format? Yeah, that that's a that's a good thing, and that's or that's a very good question. That's the difficult part where. You know, I always tell the students that I'm with you maybe an hour every week. Some of my students is an hour every two weeks. And you have all this other time by yourself. I'm not there with you. So you really have to grasp the concept of what I'm communicating to you so you can use it in that time. And of course, next time we get together, I'll review it and give you, you know, check marks or whatever and let you know how you're doing, but it's really up to you. And I, I always recommend they record the our lesson so that they can play it back and hear what I have, whatever. Um, but I, I hope to give them and be creative with each student because each student's needs are different. Uh, you know, whether a student has perfect pitch or not, or a student has really struggles, I have to come up with different techniques for them to go through. I try to start with one basic way to tune, and that's with a fork. You know, not a pitch pipe, not a marimba or a glockenspiel, because I always say you want to learn how to tune ideally from the way you'll have to tune on stage with an audience all around you or in the recording studio with the red light on. You can't hit the drums. You can't bang on a marimba. You can't play the drums loud. <laughs> you know, you need to do it as discreetly as possible. And of course, I get various uh, reactions to that. Some are great. Some learn it. And some struggle, struggle, struggle. So the ones that struggle, I have to come up with other ways. Okay, we have to go back. I'll go to the marimba in my studio and I'll, I'll strike a note and say, sing this note to me. That's step number one. Either they can, some do, or they can't. <laughs> That's a problem. And we have to develop that over time. Once they get through that, they're able to sing back that note. Then I will do it with an interval. I'll play, let's say, an A. Then I'll say, sing up four tones to a, a fourth to a D. They'll sing the A, and again, some will be able to sing the D right away, some will not. Then we'll work on that, those that can't. Yeah, and then the next thing is, okay, if, if they've gotten through that, then we go to the fork. The fork is the A, 
you got to sing up, you got to sing down the intervals from there. And, you know, some of some students continue to work on that. Some students have gotten through that. It's just there's no one answer for that. It's just it depends on the students and it depends on, you know, their focus. I tell them, you know, when you're driving to my house for a lesson, you know, have your fork and you hit it while you're driving. Probably shouldn't be telling them this, but it's better than <laughs> it's better than texting. But at least yeah, yeah, sure. it's, your, yeah. it's your fork. Listen to it. Sing it. Sing an interval. Practice, yeah. you know, practice when you can. You know, and another part of practicing, again, I'm going to break off a little bit from what you asked. All right. Don't necessarily practice any one thing longer than you can. And I don't like to put a time limit as in a number because we're all different. For one student, it may be 10 minutes and then they start to go down in what they're repeating over and over. Another student, they may be able to practice it productively for 20, 30 minutes. But whatever it is, they need to realize at a certain point, they're not being productive and they, they need to go on to something else. Put the fork down and go play the timpani, <laughs> you know, work on sticking or whatever, you know. And the same things for marimba, snare drum. If you're working on that difficult passage and it's not progressing, well, number one, probably you're playing it too fast. But stop and go do something else, you know, because our brains, they just fatigue from the same thing over and over. And the the ultimate goal is to be able to play it right away on stage. And if you're repeating this over and over, and you get it right the 76th time, that's not going to transfer to stage because it's got to be right away. So, again, that's one of the things I, I try to emphasize. And again, it's to me, it's those students that actually listen and do it versus the others that say, yeah, yeah, sure. And they don't do it. You know, patience. It's it patience, is. which... Yeah. You know, you're gonna get me going, Pete. <laughs> oh, good. I'm happy. This is awesome. I, what I, want. I love I love my cell phone, but I hate it too. And it's the same thing for students. You know, if they bring the cell phone into a lesson, they've got to turn it off. Yeah. And that's fine. But again, I only have them for one hour. Right. The rest of the time, whether they're at school or at home practicing, I can't be there to watch them to tell them, turn off the cell phone, get it out of your room. It's gonna distract you. Yes, it's great. It can have a metronome on it. Yes, it's great. You can take your your uh, practice, do your practice log on there. All those things are great, but you need to focus. And I think that's one issue with the younger generation with everything online, everything instantaneous. You can go see a performance of Shahrazad, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, some things as in mastering your instrument, just take time and you have to be patient you can't play porgy and bess in a week it's it's i mean there are those few very few that can pick it up and learn it in a week but most of us it takes a while and you just have to do that slow diligent practice you know relatedly on the tuning have you talked at all with folks who teach oral skills um to get some of their because I teach, or I, I currently teach a couple of sections of oral skills at Mizzou, and it's kind of interesting to see, you know, for, I will do some things like I'll play the do, and I'll be like, okay, sing the fifth up. It's like give me the give me soul, just like, and it's like some of them immediately, no problem. Right. That some it's right. <laughs> searching. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't I'm just wondering if you've if if uh if you've either talked to or have done some of this teaching 
just because of the, I'm just, you know, some of the ways you've, you've described it sound a lot like what I'm encountering now. I have not, I have not, you know, for whatever reason. Um, one thing I find different, and this is kind of a side thing, but being on the LA Phil's uh, audition committee, in particular, obviously, when we did timpani, uh, many of the committee members had a problem with hearing the pitch on the timpani. So I wonder, and I, I think the obvious answer is it must be, it's something perhaps that we learn also is to focus eventually, as in a, us percussionists and or whoever, uh, through the through repetition of hearing the instrument over and over and over to you know not consciously but gen over time being able to hear the hear the fundamental whereas like i experienced on the audition committee that you know they weren't really focused on timpani when they're playing in the orchestra as such but hearing it solo i got the range of well i hear all sorts of pitches or yeah, or, or or those that said, yeah, I hear the fundamental, right? I have no problem with it. And I think it's in part because of the way the instrument is with its, I mean, technically with its tension rods, which, you know, I've noticed when they're not, you've got one or two that are high, I can hear different, whether it's the wave or I can hear different pitches coming out of the two as I step away from the instrument. So I don't know if I'm giving you a good answer to your question, but I have not gone directly to voice teaching, and maybe that's been my reason why, because I found, I don't know, but the answer is no, I have not done that, but that's very interesting. It's a fascinating thing to think about, relatedly with timpani specifically, another thing I'm teaching is a percussion for composers class this semester, and we, and I was going through some just basics about timpani, and I was playing, you know, a low E on the 32, Right, and I was like, "Now listen for like, how does that sound?" And yeah. they're like, Bee. "I was like, yeah, because it's so low on that drum that they 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 heard they could hear like all of the different pitches that are in there, yeah, that are not the E, right?" Uh, and and it's like, okay, now if I raise that up to a G, like the sound starts to really get nice and clearer, right? Um, anyway, just like, but I was thinking about how how that's just it could be very different on one drum to another yes and and that affects for them like how much how or how much kind of writing you would do on the, on that drum yeah you know yeah yeah that's that's a whole nother subject for me composers <laughs> sure <laughs> <laughs> you know whether it's timpani or percussion or whatever what they're doing and what they're trying to be we know you know because they're trying to be more creative yeah. and i understand that uh and we've had this particular issue i'm going to speak about for a long time because i remember my teacher mitch speaking about it um compositions as in orchestral compositions the la field was playing where he was or it said in the part to play on the bowls right and he said no and I agree, yes. you know, yeah, that, that's that's over and beyond. You know, it's one thing for a violinist to tap their finger on there. But, you know, to hit the bowls of our timpani that we love and cherish and, 
It's I'm not, and I remember Mitch said to me that he thought, well, you provide the timpani, I'll I'll hit the bowls, but on our drums, I'm not going to strike the bowls, and I completely agree. So what I what I'm saying is when you mention you know composers and you know they need to be respectful, and the best interaction I have is with composers that ask questions. Yeah. Is this doable? Is this okay? Is this blah blah blah? I mean, we did uh, the premiere of John Adams' City Noir. I got to play the vibraphone part, which is now on many auditions. Um, but one of the things that came up in that, after he wrote the first version, which he actually revised it slightly, and I think in part because of me, when he came to the first rehearsal, he's like, oh, my gosh, did I write for that many gongs? Like, yes, you did. Literally, <laughs> literally, he wrote for 30 gongs. And, you know, if they're all, you know, eight inches in diameter, yeah. it's not a problem. Right. But they included my low C. I, I have a personal collection that we were using at the time. Uh -huh. And that low C must be five, six feet, you know, across. So he he uh, edited the part and got it down down to, i think 20 or 24 oh all right so you know it's those impracticalities and more even more so than that i just use that as an example and john was very good about it cuz you know he came to me and said oh my gosh i had no idea yeah. but the more impractical thing is when you have a marimba part and it goes right to let's say glockenspiel uh, yeah, what right. do you do mallet wise? Yeah. You know? Do you use a relatively hard mallet for marimba, but it won't really work on Glock? Or do you use a soft Glock mallet that kind of works on the upper register of marimba? It's right. just things like that. And, you know, I have no problem making those adjustments, but it's when the composer stops and says, you know, I can't hear the marimba. I'm like, well, okay. <laughs> or I can't hear the Glock. It's for the reason that. You gave me no time to drop a pair and pick up, or I already have four, right? You know, four mallets in my hand. I have to drop those, you know, et cetera. You know the yeah, yeah. you know the line. So yeah. it's those issues and writing these. Well, <laughs> I'll mention one other piece sure. that we did years ago. Ah, who's the composer? I can't, it's a British composer. Maybe have uh, you know your listeners look up the the composer, but the piece, as I recall, I think it's Blue Lake. It's some lake. Yeah. It's a British composer, and it called for literally like forty eight rototoms <laughs> divided among two players. I could be off by a few, but it might be forty two. But it's something in the forties. And when I got the part, I was like, "You got to be kidding." So the first thing I did is, okay, where do they actually, you know, where does it cross over? Maybe we can cut it down to 30 or something. But there really was no practical way because it's not only the part, but it's a setup on stage right. that you have to yeah. take into consideration. So basically, two extra players said, yeah, begrudgingly, I'll take this on. Yeah, yeah. The two of them... They got 48 Tom Toms and they said they locked themselves in a room and they just worked it out. Um, I can remember hearing after we did that, that this piece, I wish I, I think it's Michael Tippett, actually. Okay. It might not be Blue Lake, but it is some type of a lake in the title. Mm -hmm. 
I remember hearing that Cleveland, it was on a program in Cleveland and uh, Rich Wiener refused to do it. He just said no. And I'm like, damn, there's experience, you know. <laughs> right. Instead of going through all we went through, you know, uh, I should have just said, no, this is not practical. You know, have a keyboard player play this, whatever. Right. But, you know, it, but it's those type of things that you don't get often, but it, it is more of the mallet thing, not allowing you time to go from bass drum to marimba or whatever that, you know, I, I wish I wish they'd ask, ask a percussionist. They'd be glass, glad to let you know. No, that's not practical. Give yeah. them two seconds to change mallets right. or something. Right. Or uh, if you want to hear the marimba or vibe part, uh, significantly reduce anything else that is happening on ensemble and then exactly. maybe you'll hear it. Exactly. You know, because there are those crazy mallet parts that we'll get in an orchestra. And when we get to rehearsal, you know, debuting, uh, debuting, premiering a piece that there is no recording of, we can't hear it before. But when we get to rehearsal, we play it and we're like, you know, I can't hear myself. You know? <laughs> so yeah, that's that's orchestration, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or lack or lack thereof. Right, yeah. I I mean that the the tippet piece, if, if it is tippet, but I just thinking like it's like you lost me on Roto Tom. I just want to start. Well, I just want to give you that as the as the starting point here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I don't know what he was thinking. I don't know if, you know, that's what they say. Perhaps it's a joke about the uh, Bernstein symphonic dances, the part where the timpanist uses maracas. Uh, yeah. if, if Bernstein was getting back at Saul for something <laughs> or what, or the same thing here with Michael Tippett and, and the rototoms, if he was getting back at the LSO percussion section or whatever, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it had nothing to do with that. I hope so. But, you know, it's just... It's really out there, you know. <laughs> I remember we did we did a, a Frank Zappa. I think it's two hundred motels. Okay, uh, huge setup, huge, a big choir, big orchestra, including a, a rock band, and as I recall, eight percussionists. I think, as if I remember, it called for like six bass drums. Could be eight, but but I remember at least six. And yeah, I'm like, where do you start with the setup of this? You know, do you really need six concert bass drums? You know, it's like, it's yes, it can be done, and we did it. But you know, one percussionist was almost off into the wings. You know, <laughs> etc. So yeah, these are the these are the fun challenges of being a principal percussionist. You know, and I like the job. I like because it's like having this big puzzle you've got to put together yeah. and make sure all the things fit. And you know what the guys are having to do today, which I had a little bit of risk before I retired, is these movie soundtracks. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, they play it from beginning to end, which these cues are not written that way. They're written to be done individually. And then you do a new new setup for the new cue, but they've got to run them down. So these principal percussions have to learn their trade real quick, as in you've got to do stations. And as much as possible, one player plays all the bass drum, but it, it's just not that's not the way it's written. But, you know, we can't have five xylophones on stage and four sets of tom-toms. So, you know, my hat's off to him. I did a little bit of that before I retired, but that's I, that's what I understand is going through now is seeing on Facebook these 
hey, has anybody ever done, you know, the Harry Potter six movie? It's got, you know, this X amount of stuff. What did you, what did you end up doing? Which, wow. <laughs> That's all I can say is wow. You. <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. No, it's again, it's wild. We're going to move to uh, you getting the job at Los Angeles. Um, where, where were you in terms of your orchestral career when you win that? And then, um, and then what was, tell me more about the pro, like the actual audition and the stages to get to, to winning it. Yeah, I was a freelancer in LA playing in the American Youth Symphony, which was conducted at the time by Maley Maida. That's Zubin Maida's father. Oh, awesome. Playing in the Young Musician Foundation debut orchestra here in LA, which is famous for not only the my colleagues, the orchestra musicians board, but conductors that have led the orchestra, as in Michael Tilson Thomas, Myung Mung Chung, et cetera, who's now, who I believe is still the music director at Paris Opera. But anyway, these are really excellent. I can't I can't tell you how much I learned from these ensembles, these youth orchestras that were just amazing. Uh, unfortunately, the debut orchestra is not existing anymore, but the American Youth Symphony is still in existence. So I was a uh, timpanist in both and freelancing, doing whatever teaching, you know, whatever I could do at the time for income. And uh, actually, the audition came up. I forget the exacts, but let's say early 83, perhaps. And they had an audition that I did not go to, and they didn't accept anyone. They didn't, no one got the job. So they had another, uh, they announced another round of auditions in the fall. And my teacher, Mitch Peters, again, said, you really should do this. I'm like, no, no, I'm not ready. He said, you should do this. Well, you know, I have, you should do this. It's right here in town. You know, he, he complimented my playing and said, you know, excellent player, et cetera, et cetera. Which, of course, I have my own doubts. But, you know, it, it says a lot, especially looking back, that my teacher had that much confidence in me to do it. And so, you know, I prepared for it. He helped, he guided me. And I did the first round, which, again, it's it's been a while. This was 83, so that's, what, 40 years ago now? Yeah. I, I, I want to say I didn't have to play the first round because I was an extra. I was playing extra with them on occasion. But anyway, I played whatever round I played and got advanced. And I remember, well, what did I play? It was timpani and percussion. So specifics, it, it's hard to remember sure, the <laughs> repertoire, but I played everything pretty much, as in timpani, snare, xylo, cymbals, tambour, etc. And then uh, got advanced to the final round with one other player. And we went up individually, played our final round, which was same instruments, just more on each each instrument. Again, I, it's kind of a blur as to sure. the exact stuff. Came down, sat sat in the the meeting room with my my colleague, and we were just talking, talking. And then the personnel manager comes in and asks the other person to go up, which. You know, I, I thought nothing of. And later the other guy said, you know, that usually means they're the winner. They usually tell the winner first. But whatever. I I wasn't thinking anything of it. So 
anyway, like a few minutes later, personal manager comes and leads me to the the music director and the, who at the time was Carlo Maria Giulini and the pa- and the orchestra panel uh, audition committee. And Giulini just walked up to me and shook my hand. Congratulations. I'm just, you know, what? Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations for what? <laughs> yeah. uh, and, you know, they made it known to me that at this point, I am the one that they have chosen to play a week with the orchestra. Because, you know, it's a it's a prime position. It's not a section, second violin. I don't mean to put down second violins, but, you know, it's a very notarized uh, or what, a, a prominent position. Yeah. So... I forget exactly when, maybe a week or two later, I I played the Bruckner Eighth Symphony, mm-hmm. which has a, a nice beefy timpani part, I would say. And, that, and it's a long symphony, so that was the only thing on the program. So I did four performances of that. I think like after the first performance, uh, Maestro called me to the room and said, you know, Anything, anything you'd like to ask or, you know, I think you're doing. I said, (laughs) if you're happy, I'm happy. (laughs) And so after the last concert on Sunday, uh, again, I was told before that they would have a meeting after to discuss. And so I was to stick around. So I stuck around at certain point. Personnel manager came and got me and I was congratulated. So, you know, again, I, I'm I'm blown away because I'm this 25-year-old, you know, really has no experience other than um, youth orchestras, you know, which is not the typical thing. But, you know, on the side, I'm elated. I'm dancing in my head. It's like, right, yeah. wow, wow. And, you know, from that point on, I have to say it was Mitch and the section at that time. It was uh, Walt Goodwin, Chuck Delancey. And Mitch, they just, you know, were so helpful in every way, anything I needed, any questions I had, anything I, you know, anything they could help me with, they did. And it just made it so easy, that whole process. So that was my introduction, you know, and my my getting into the L.A. Phil and uh, stayed there for 33 years. And, you know, it wasn't a hard decision to leave. The decision was with my wife that. You know, at the time I was 57, 58, and I wanted to do more things, you know, hint, hint, a you know, right, yeah. mm-hmm. because I knew whatever I stick my mind to, basically, I, I focus on, I knew it would take a lot of time and I could not do it with the Philharmonic schedule. The best job, what I always wanted to do, playing all of that repertoire, playing with the fantastic musicians on stage playing with these amazing conductors and soloists. It was just a dream. I just, you know, still looking back on it, it's it's very amazing. What a ride, all the recordings, the the tours, the concerts and the the ridiculous comments from some conductors. Hey, do you have shinier cymbals? I'm like <laughs> that one always sticks out. Well, yeah, but they don't sound as good. <laughs> it's not about the looks, I thought. But anyway, it, it was just... It I may be just, wrong here. Well, yeah. I mean, apparently for him, he wanted he wanted the look. It wasn't so much the sound of the symbols. So. But it was an amazing ride for me that I'll always be grateful for and blessed. And like I said, that's 
I want to help others. I want to help others to get to that point because it really does take a lot. Uh, for me, I was fortunate where my parents, or I would say I just grew up around music and my parents loved music. They were not professional and mom played piano in the church Dad sang in the church choir, but, you know, didn't read music. But there was just always music around the house, um, whether it was Ravel's Bolero or Duke Ellington or whatever. There was just good music. So I grew up with, I knew Rhapsody Espanol before I knew what it was, mm -hmm. because I'd heard it so many times. I knew, you know, the obvious Tchaikovsky, 1812, etc., because I'd heard it so, so many times, because Dad would you know have it in his record collection so i was blessed with that and then getting the right teacher again for me was mitch uh which i i express to students now it's not so much for me my perspective it's not so much the school the music department it's your private teacher mm -hmm. if you bond with that person then you're 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 going to do well probably it's no guarantees but, you know, if you go to this illustrious school that you think is illustrious or and or has a great music program, but you just don't sync with the instructor, it's there's going to be issues. Yeah. Or I would say maybe you won't blossom as much as you or as well as you could somewhere else where somebody you just and that's my point is that's the relationship I had with Mitch. You know, we're both kind of low key. You know, he never yelled at me. I never yelled at him, of course. Um, but we just had that relationship where we un understood each other. And he saw in me the same thing that I see in certain students. When you give them in, you give them information and they just soak it up and they come back and ready for more. And that's that's, you know, pretty much the ideal student that makes it real easy to just give, 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 give. And they just want more and more. So. So again, I'm giving you a long answer to I don't even remember your question, but <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. It's it's all good. So I'm I'm gonna back up a couple more things regarding um regarding the LA Phil. The audition parts, were they were any of those blind or were they all open? Or were some of them blind, some open? Definitely the final was no screen. I would say, to be honest, I don't remember okay. absolute. Yeah. I would think there was no screen back then, but I, I can't say that with certainty. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's my understanding that at least when I left and I think today there is no screen in finals. Mm -hmm. And that would be another thing, maybe another podcast I can go off on. Sure. It makes it makes no sense to me, you know, whether what, members what, of what the panel well, members of the panel might say. Well, I want to see how they move. I want to see how they, you know, are on stage. Mm -hmm. That's what the probation period allows right. for, you know, uh, right. or whatever. You know, it's just you've had the screen up before. You've gotten to this point. Why bring it down now? You know, other than, you know, you want to see who they are or whatever. I, I'm not saying that's always the case, but it, that may be the case more often than not and whatever and you know, so I like to say I don't want to get into a long thing with that because I'll go off for a long time on the whole audition process and how it's they're trying to make it fair and blah 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 blah. It, it's it, it's got its 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 issues and its problems, and and that's that's the thing. So get in an orchestra, you have to get through that process, right? 
you have to master with by whichever way, you know, whether you're a female and you can't wear your heels or or whatever, you know, you should be able to wear heels if you want to wear heels, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's flawed. It's it's a flawed process. And how to make it perfect, I don't know. I can I can give ideas as how to improve it, but you know, that's just me. So sure. Well, related, uh, so, but I am going to ask a follow-up now about the process, about being on the other side, because I assume yeah. that you were on other people's auditions. Yes. What yeah. kinds of stuff were you either learning, understanding, uh, being on the other side of the equation that you could, that that you find is helpful to tell someone, you know, that you're mentoring about it? Well, the first thing that I always heard before, and I, uh, when I've done auditions, I realize it's usually the truth. You can tell pretty much right away from when the person starts playing. You can tell within maybe 30 seconds what level they're at, whether they're ready, whether they're good but not ready, or whether, you know, they need a lot more, a lot more training. Um, that's the obvious. They have to pay attention to details. I mean, it helps. It's not a major thing, but, you know, when they when the music's up in front and it says start here and end here, you know, it's not a major thing, but you need to start here and end here. It sounds real simple, but, you know, you need to know and you need to be flexible. You need to know different ways to do this. And and this usually comes in a later round, usually with the music director, where uh, you may play something and the music director may say, great, fine. Can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do it a little faster? Can you retard? You know, and if you're so set in stone on doing it the way you've practiced one way, that's going to be a problem, you know, because if the next candidate comes and is flexible, uh, typically the music director and the panel will go with that player because you want flexibility. You want because it happens in. In our job, you know, the conductor will stop and say, you know, we need to retard here or whatever. I need more sound from you here, whatever. And, you know, we can't, the orchestra can't spend time waiting on you figuring it out at, for the next rehearsal. It needs to happen right away. So that that's a major thing. Um, you know, all of the obvious things are really blatant. If you have bad time and you're playing by yourself, <laughs> It really is smack you in the face. If you have bad intonation on timpani, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, you're not going to get very far. Um, and then your musicality. I mean, that's one thing that Bach, I think, really brings out in the candidates. Because, you know, with Bach, with the transcriptions and or arrangements and or if you're playing right from the violin part... There isn't a lot of dynamics. There isn't a lot of retard, et cetera, et cetera. So it's what you bring to it. And I think it should not come out as a romantic piece. But on the other hand, it shouldn't sound like my computer playing it back. Yes. So, <laughs> yeah, it shouldn't, to, at least in my mind. Right. Uh, and I'll never forget one of the first uh, auditions I did after being on, being on the panel. One of the first auditions I did or heard being on the pian- panel was percussion. After hearing a Bach, several of the panel members turned to me and said, does it have to be so percussive? <laughs> like, you know, he's playing on marimba. The yeah, yeah. Players play- yes, that's, but I understand what they're saying. They're so used to hearing it, you know, whether it's on violin or cello on a string instrument, that it's so different for them. 
Right. So in a way, you do need to interpret in a way that is more intuitive or of the instrument it's written for, whatever that means. Um, but what I what I will say is the candidates that impress me the most on Bach are the ones that generally use a softer mallet and their touch is so sweet, so pure, so beautiful, where you hear the instrument resume, resonate and it is not as percussive. It's always going to be percussive because that's what we do. But I think it's the musicality of the sound overall that can be glorious and or too clunky. You know, right. So... Uh, the choice of mallet is very important. And then your expression, don't overdo it. It's Bach, but then don't play everything rhythmically straight. There is some rubato that would be nice, but don't overdo that. Don't overdo breaking up chords and, you know, you can go too far in either direction. So, yeah. You don't want the, the committee to be looking at the score and going, so there is a tempo expected on this, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I I think I've kind of heard and seen it all through the years and and not not just on, you know, Bach but on the Dukas, the the sure. so-called waterfall part, you know, the where it's just a swash of sound just they're trying to play it so fast. It doesn't have to be that fast. Actually, I think you should play it a little bit under. And if anything, they might ask you to play it again a little bit faster. But I, I don't think if you play a little under, it's going to be, that's too slow. My, my point is, therefore, I will hear, and hopefully the panel will hear the clarity. And you there's some understanding of what's going on here. Because if you play it really fast, what's the point, you know? And so I, I think it's it sounds... Shows a sign of maturity if you play it a little bit under and it's clear and we hear every note and it's musical, you know. Yeah. But, that, but that's just one example. Sure. I wonder when you were studying with with uh, with Mitchell Peters, would there be would he have conversations with you about performing certain like well-known Tiffany excerpts in varying uh, styles? Not I mean, styles, not the right word, but like at least making you really well-versed in different ways that this can be done to in, in basically so that if you were asked to switch or asked to make an adjustment fast, you have that access to that information. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, in part it was specifics as in, let's say the end of the Tchaikovsky Romeo and Juliet, the heartbeat, you know, the way he liked to do it and the way he taught me to do it was with one hand and you can have a mute. You can put the other place, the other mallet on a far side of the timpani, which will mute it also. But he said, you know, there's some play alternating right, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, et cetera. Um, but also, I think through just our routine of developing fundamental uh, technique and musicality, that that went into the being prepared to do things different ways because he taught me to do things in a different way, you know, various role styles, various, uh, you know, rudimental patterns to, that you can use and how to open a flam up and close a flam to so-called maybe French flam where you hit at the same time. So 
Although it wasn't always applied to a specific excerpt, it was understood. These are things you need in your palate. When you teach that to students, is that does that take them a while to? Are, are some of them like kind of very can get very strict about? Oh no, it needs to be like this. Like, is that a hard lesson to get through, or is that tend to be received pretty well? I think received well. I always say for for the students, please, please, please ask questions. You know, when I offer a way to do or whatever to do, please ask why if you don't, if I didn't explain it or you don't understand, because to me, there should always be a reason. It's not, oh, well, this is what my teacher taught me or, oh, well, this is what works for me. That doesn't mean that's the way to do it. So I will offer them what I do, why I do it, and what what meaning or what thought process I have behind it. I'll have them try it. And if they're struggling, I'll say, well, try this. Here's another way to do it. And, you know, and give them the thought process of, okay, let me take this, let me work, and let me see what works for me. But ideally, I want to be able to do at least a couple of different ways and not just one thing. You know, and one simple thing I can use an example, and it's not so much you're playing, but it's a choice of mallets that for whatever reason in LA, and I will be, I'll take responsibility for this in part because I was principal. Uh, we don't like brass mallets on the glockenspiel. Mm -hmm. And I, I know there are certain excerpts that other teachers and other players were taught to use brass on, uh, on specific excerpts. And I, I just don't like the sound, let alone that I find that brass can put little pits in the, the bars. Um, but now they have aluminum. Back then there was only brass. But now there's aluminum that almost completely sounds the same, but does not damage the instrument. But but anyway, my point with this is that that's something that I prefer. But it's not like it's the law. Because I understand when someone comes in and pulls out their brass mallets or whatever, it's a different sound. And there's one time when we were doing a Mahler 7, and I wasn't playing Glock, but uh, Michael Tilson Thomas specifically asked for, can you can you use brass on that? And as principal, I had to say, well, we don't we don't do that. You know, we don't go with that sound and blah, blah, blah. He said, and he said, oh, it's a shame because I like that sound. So what I did, we have a funky or a funkier Glock that we put on stage exactly for that passage. And it he loved it. It was fine. And when I say funky, it wasn't like, you know, I don't mean it was a crappy instrument. No, I, right. Yeah. It, it wasn't our number one go to. Yes. Instrument. <laughs> but this is one. Yeah, this is one way, because what I also mentioned to students, you got to please the conductor. You know, you don't want him <laughs> or her not happy with what's going on back there. So that's one way to, to do that. We use the brass mallets and just on a different instrument. And it worked. No, I I, I knew you meant like just like not the number one. That's all. It was just yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I guess crappy for the LA Phil is not crappy as what other other players might have in their yes. collection. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll hear more from Rainer Carroll next week. So stay tuned. This week's rave is the 2022 film RRR, starring N.T. Rama Rao Jr., Ram Chadan, Aliyah Bhatt, 
and Olivia Morris, and directed by S.S. Rajamuli. Available streaming on Netflix, or, if you are so fortunate, playing in selected theaters. I mentioned that last part because my wife and I, during the spring break, noticed that it was playing at our local art house cinema, and thought that this was the perfect time to take in the three-plus-hour film. And it was. And if this is also a plug for going to see movies in person, I'll allow that too. If you watched the most recent Academy Awards, you may be aware that the song Natu Natu from this film won Best Original Song. And I'll talk more about that later. But to preface, this is a standard-length Bollywood film that, as many films in that genre do, has it all. Comedy, drama, love, insane fight scenes, crazy dance sequences, the history of the world all bottled up, legendary stories, and it was a complete blast to watch all of that on the big screen with great speakers, as hopefully you'll be able to do as well. The essential story is that in 1920s India, under British rule, a young girl is stolen from a family, and Beam, played by N.T. Ramarajo Jr., is tasked with returning the girl back to her family. On the side of helping to keep the country under British rule is super soldier and cop Alori Ramaraju, played by Ran Chadan, someone whose exploits completely break the movie free from any necessary realism and transport you to another time and place. Alia Bhatt plays Sita, Ramaraju's love interest, while Olivia Morris plays Jenny, Beam's love interest. And the sparks fly. One of the items I was made aware of before watching the movie was that it was very clear early on in this film that a lot of it is shot on a green screen. So this should allow you to just put away any idea of realism watching this movie because that will curtail your enjoyment of the film. As mentioned earlier, an early scene featuring the super soldier cop fighting essentially an entire nation by himself will open you up to the wild, fantastical nature of the film. And then it just goes up from there. And the fight and battle scenes get more unreal and extreme from then on. And it's awesome. And the musical sequences are also really great as well. Best known is the Natu Natu extravaganza, which is essentially a massive dance-off between European and Indian cultures that honestly tires you out and you're just watching it. And there are a lot more musical numbers peppered throughout, some on the more uplifting side, some on the more serious side, some on the more love side. It's all there. In person, the movie came with a 10-minute intermission. That was much appreciated. Then you buckle up and enjoy the second half. If you have the time and are ready for an incredibly enjoyable experience, check out RRR. You will hopefully be totally glad you did. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Rainer Carroll. Until then.